0: Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. uh, I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. We are going to talk today about the album, often regarded as the greatest live album ever made, The Who's live at Leeds. It's 50 years since that was recorded and released. We're going to talk about an L.A. 60s writer whose writing name was Eden. She just called herself Eden, and we'll be talking about the magazine she wrote for, KRLA Beat. We also have an audio interview with Ron Sexsmith, and we'll be talking, as ever, about everything that's new in the library this week. And there's the front doorbell.
1: <laughs> I can leave that in. I like that. Definitely
2: leave that in. Yeah, the authentic Zoom podcast.
0: <laughs> They're delivering my super enhanced deluxe edition of the Who's Live at Leeds. Mark, talk <laughs> yes. to me. Talk to me about Live at Leeds and its oh. status.
1: Well, I mean, my brother bought it when it came out. First of all, the packaging was astonishing. It was so beautifully done. It had a gatefold sleeve for a single album with a poster inside, which has got Townsend Thrashing as Rickenbacker with Max R&B printed on it. It's such a beautiful item. But also, that original final release was just astonishingly good. I mean, brilliantly recorded. This is a band, probably at their live peak in many ways, just sensational. Then some years later, they did the special C D deluxe re-release. And I got into slight like Barney with sorry, Barney. Uh, you Barney with, a Barney
3: with me. Kinky. I got into
1: a Barney with Chris Charlesworth, our esteemed contributor, because he had actually put it together. And I'd made a comment on our then existing Rocksback Pages blogs, which we've since kind of got rid of, probably for very good reason, this being one of them, saying that the original vinyl release was brilliant and the re-release was just ghastly because they chucked in all that awful A Quick One stuff. You know, the Pete Townsend's first attempt at a rock opera. And personally, I despise A Quick One. I think it's the who at the absolute worst. If any of you have seen Rolling Stone's Rock and Roll Circus movie, which was, you know, finally saw the light of day a few years back, the who are on that, and they're doing A Quick One. And you're thinking, no, do Magic Bus, do, you know, anything other than A Quick One. So, the CD reissue is, I think, wrecked, but the original vinyl, I think, is right up there as possibly the best live
0: album ever. It's so powerful. Mark, you talked about the cover, and obviously it was a sort of fake bootleg style packaging, wasn't it? Brown paper with a stamp. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. brown, Brown
1: paper with a stamp. It's an astonishing record. I mean, you know, all of the musicians concerned, which, you know, Keith Moon on drums, N. Twistle on bass, and Pete Townsend, I'm not sure I've ever heard them play better. Before or since, they do some really great cover versions, Young Man Blues, and so on. It's electrifying.
2: It's great, great. So, what is it that makes something a great live album? I mean, you're saying that the playing is just great. They probably you think they never played better. But what about live at Leeds? Is it that is you know grants it that? Because it's not just you saying that. A lot of people think it's well, well, it's it's quite the or the greatest live album ever made.
1: It's quite interesting. It's recorded at Leeds University. Interestingly, there was a Stone, the Stones have recently released some of their stuff from their 71 tour, also done at Leeds University. And it's obviously a good-sounding hall for a start. You know, it just had that quality. It's not a big place, so you, can, you feel your, the audience mm. present there. I like live albums. I mean, some people absolutely hate them. I mean, I have to like them because I'm a Grateful Dead fan and their best stuff is almost invariably live, you know. And there's quite a few other live albums I like. I mean, there's a great Ray Charles one recorded in Atlanta for a radio broadcast, which is just sensational, from like 59 or something like that. I like live albums. Some people dislike them. And Barney, do you dislike
0: live albums almost in principle? No, not at all. Although I just don't think there are great live albums being made anymore for whatever reasons. You know, nobody really talks much about live albums. Back in those days, live albums were both de rigueur and fascinating to us Mm -hmm. fans, particularly if you hadn't seen the groups in question.
1: I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is that these days, as we said last week, in a different context, that people playing live try and reproduce their records much more now, where let's say 69, 70, 71, 72 the live experience is a very different experience, mm. that the band would be playing differently. They'd stretch things out. They'd do different things to those songs. So if you got a live album, you're actually getting a very different
2: item. I would present one exception to that mm-hmm. about the recency thing, is that Daft Punk, Alive 97 and Alive 2007, mm-hmm. are, I think, worthy of being in the top 10, 20, whatever, greatest live albums ever. And they're, they're quite recent. And... They're not a band, even, as such. Yeah. But those albums are phenomenal in terms of that Because they actually did do different things with the records, yeah. and there are lots of mixes between tracks and sort of almost mash-ups of their own music in such a way that it just... And the Live 2007 tour made Daft Punk legendary yeah. as one of the greatest live acts of the 21st century, and I think it's a very successful album as well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I think one thing is, that back in the day, I mean, there were two reasons for doing live album bands. had One was a way of ending a contract they wanted to get out of, contract fulfilment. Mm. That was pretty <laughs> common. But otherwise, it was actually to do something different. And Barney and I both love Rock of Ages, the band's live album, where they did a completely different thing. They hired Alan Toussaint to do the horn arrangements and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was a very different thing from what you'd normally get. Certain bands, Deep Purple, I think, were exceptional live, even though the lead singer was invariably a complete pillock. But, you know, you you did get some there was some sensational live recordings of Deep Purple. Spotify has loads of ones which were never released before. And you hear, you realise how great a guitarist Richie Blackmore could be, because in front of an audience, he would just go off the deep end. You know, he'd go off the diving board and, and, and do some really fascinating stuff. Conversely, my great hero, Jimi Hendrix, This. Really not a lot of great live stuff of his. And it's partly because in some ways, the nature of the audiences he played to and his feeling that he had to deliver what these rather moronic, particularly American audiences liked, meant that he sort of would go for the obvious rather
0: than sort of actually stretch out in a particularly interesting sort of way. Very mixed experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I came a little late to Live at Leeds. I certainly didn't hear it in 1970 when it came out. Mm -hmm. So there was already a slightly different Who in my mind when I first listened to Live at Leeds, you know, probably 73, 74. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I saw them at Charlton in 74, and they certainly didn't sound as good as they sound on this record. I was staggered by the raw power and electricity just the thrill of these four musicians captured on this yep. record and there isn't very much like it and because the backstory is that Townsend had tried to get recordings of live shows in the U.S. and had brought them back to London and they were just very unsatisfactory and it was a slightly quite impulsive right. spontaneous decision to record this Leeds show as well as the following night at Hull And what they ended up with was was something that really was authentic. It really captured how dynamic they were on stage. I mean, brutally exciting.
1: Yeah, I saw them at the Hammersmith Palais around 71, I think. I saw them at the Hammersmith Palais, supported by the James Gang, who actually were really rather brilliant. And again, it was what the reissue tells you and what the original issue didn't tell you, is that when they were playing their great singles, their great cover versions, they were fantastic. But again, there was that... Really dead stretch of a quick one stuck in the middle. Also, in 71, they were doing chunks of Tommy, which actually worked pretty well live. You know, they'd worked out a sort of combination of the various, what they regarded as the highlights of Tommy, and played them as a sort of medley. Yes. And that was pretty successful.
0: But very significant that Townsend opted not to include any of that on the original vinyl album. It's yeah. a very, very different Who, that yeah. first side. You know, it's just this, these short, explosive songs. Yeah. I mean, I think the version of Mose Allison's Young Man Blues is fantastic. probably the most exciting thing on the record. But the versions are shaken all over Johnny Kim and the Pirates, the version of Summertime Blues, Eddie Cochran. I mean, yeah. it's very, very different from, like, the rock operatic style yeah. of Tommy. And I think that's what's so thrilling about it. And Magic Bus is just fantastic on live. At Absolutely you know, it's fantastic. It's just, just extraordinary. I mean, so in the main piece that we're featuring to do with Live at Leeds is, it's a sort of two-in-one thing. Geoffrey Cannon, who was the reviewer for The Guardian and also wrote for The Village Voice, wrote a a long-ish review of the album, which was, as he put it, I think, sort of slashed to pieces, which was customary in those days. So we have the original review he wrote that he wanted The Guardian to run. And in it, he quotes Townsend. I mean, he, he says that he... He'd spoken to Townsend the other day. Townsend (laughs) said to him there was this impossible... So this is like May 70. And Townsend says there's this impossible gap between what we were doing compositionally and what we were doing on stage. We could never recreate a stage atmosphere in a studio. And this was the answer to that problem." Yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say, in fact, probably the only time they, on vinyl, they actually got that stage atmosphere was My Generation. The single of my generation. My brother bought that probably when it came out, and it's extraordinary. It, it's that is the Who as they appeared live at Leeds, you know, and it's loud. It's, they cut that record so loud that you put another record afterwards and it disappear. you know. It was simply the loudest sounding piece of vinyl we owned, you know, and it just bursts out of the speakers in a way that actually their other productions didn't, and so on and so forth. You know, So that that's kind of live at Leeds and My Generation single is, I think, optimum
0: who as optimum a plan maximum who. Try to put us to Talking about my generation. Just
3: because we get around
2: It does raise an interesting point, and I wonder if you feel the same, Mark, that there's something different when you're playing music, of playing it in front of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that that is part of why a live album can be something that is not a studio album, because there is that interaction. There is some kind of conversation going on between the band amongst themselves, trying to impress each other in front of all these people, but also, crucially, between the band and the audience there's some kind of dialogue
1: absolutely i think that's absolutely right it's interesting the one musical form where no one seems to object to live albums is jazz which no. is all about that yeah, interaction absolutely. of musicians absolutely. on the spot
2: because you get kind of egged on in yeah. some direction or you feel some kind of response to a thing you're doing even if it's just one person going oh fucking hell that's yeah. awesome yeah, but- yeah. You know, there's some kind of interaction. I think that makes a lot of difference. It's to curious. A good musician.
1: That, that I think, in light of this, of what we're talking about on Facebook, a lot of my music journalist friends and their friends have been talking about the Who for a start. Not many people like the Who anymore. Of the sort of the, the people I know, they become sort of slightly dismissed. And also live albums, and the kind of consensus is people don't like live albums. And I think it's because live albums have something that the studio albums don't, and they don't like what live albums have, which is a looseness, which is a rawness, which is, you know, all the the odd peculiarities that can crop up when someone's... Like, I mean, Barney, when we were talking about Lucinda Williams the other day, you raised her Fillmore albums mm-hmm. being actually one of her better albums. You know, yeah. I love them. I like live albums. You know, I, I certainly don't have any prejudice against them. And I think there are times when you... With a live album, you hear something of a band which you never hear from their studio recordings.
0: And we should talk really about what made The Who so distinctive and so great, so different from Mm -hmm. other British bands of that time. I mean, they sort of invented hard rock in some ways, and they played it in a way that's so different from, say, well, obviously different from the stones but really different from led zeppelin very different from any other hard rock mm-hmm. bands on either side of the atlantic i suppose the cliche is that they were all kind of soloing all the time um <laughs> well
1: I, yeah, I you know I, i'd say that actually what's odd is they're an upside down band there's actually yes townsend does take solos on live at leeds he takes solos but his job is to hold the Tuned together by whacking those chords out. And yeah. it's the bass and the drums who are soloing.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is the most extraordinary rhythm section, isn't it? And, yeah. Um, I actually wanted to quote from, because there's this wonderful, one of the, my favourite literary critics, James Wood, who was for a long time the New Yorker's, principal literary critic, he put together a collection of his work called The Fun Stuff. And most of it is about, you know, like Tolstoy or Jeff Dyer (laughs) or Richard Yates, but actually the title essay is about Keith Moon (laughs) (laughs) and it's a wonderful piece of music writing I would love to have on Rock's back pages I'll just quote from it the first principle of Moon's drumming was that drummers do not exist to keep the beat he did keep (laughs) the beat and very well but he did it by every method other than the traditional one drumming is repetition as is rock music generally and Moon clearly found repetition dull so he played the drums like no one else and not even like himself. I mean, <laughs> I mean that no two bars of Moon's play ever sound the same. He is in revolt against consistency. He's always vandalizing repetition. Everyone else in the band gets to improvise, so why should the drummer be nothing more than a condemned metronome? It's a <laughs> yeah. tremendous piece about uh, the, the, the joy uh, the, and madness uh, the, of Moon's play.
2: I love it. That's great. Yeah. Vandalising yeah, that. is <laughs> fantastic.
0: I, I found this fantastic Elvin Jones
1: quote. This is from, I think, about 1968 or 69 in Melody Maker. And he's asked about rock drummers. And he says, you know, Ginger Baker, he's no good. You know, he's, he thinks he's great, but, you know, he's just, he's just really uninteresting. But Keith Moon... Everything that band does goes through, is from, comes from Keith Moon, and that's Melvin Jones. I think, which is fantastic. Is fantastic. The only oh, yeah. other drummer, rock and roll drummer, I've seen electrify me in the same way was Clem Burke with Blondie, right. and he was a very Keith Moonesque drummer live. That's absolutely you know,
0: wanted and, to be wanted to be Keith Moon,
1: and he kind of could do it. You know, he had that sort of right. like crazed lunacy about him. I think Moon's death was the end of the Who. As, we, as a band Definitely. we're interested
0: in. But then yeah. there's Entwistle as well. And I think, you know, the quiet man, as the bassist so often is in a supergroup like that, he was an extraordinary bass player. Yeah. Again, you compare oh, yeah. him to, sort oh, of, to yeah. someone like Bill Wyman. And, you know, Bill Wyman is just sort of plodding and kind of timekeeping compared to what Entwistle's doing, which is, which is just relentlessly soloing yeah, in yeah. parallel with Moon.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, very high volume.
0: It tends to be high volume. One of the other pieces for this Who feature is the aforementioned Chris Charlesworth review. Of Paul Reese's new biography of Ant Whistle, The Ox, which was, of course, John's nickname, Chris tries to get to the heart of the mystery of how such an extraordinary musician could simultaneously be such a dark horse, yeah. and then, you know, obviously in the latter years of his life, after Townsend, initially ended the who such a self-destructive human being i mean for those who don't know he died essentially with a high class escort in a las vegas hotel room in i think it's was 2003 wasn't it i mean over being... of a cocaine induced heart attack. cocaine yeah i mean his his main tipple was he liked the combination of brandy and cocaine i mean as did keith moon as did a lot of rock stars of that era but it did it did kill John Entwistle. And I remember being shocked because I didn't realise just how debauched he'd become at that point. Did you? No, no. I, I didn't. I, not I, at the age of six, anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I really had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I knew that Townsend had had long struggles with hard drugs and with alcohol and so on yeah. and so forth. And Keith Moon, obviously, you know, had died. You know, what was it? He died partly because he was overdosed on the thing that was meant to stop him drinking.
0: Yeah, And Moon was the loon, but Entwistle wasn't, was he? I mean, he wasn't a loon. I mean, I think he got involved in japes in hotel rooms with Moon, but Moon was just completely insane once he had branding. I think he probably was clinically insane. He certainly was like sort of had massive kind of ADHD, I would say. I don't think Entwistle did. I think Entwistle just got very, very depressed when the, he didn't imagine in 1980, whatever it was, 1982, I don't think he realised there was any possibility that The Who would end, despite Moon no longer being with him.
1: No, it's, it's strange that the strangest member of that band in terms of chemical consumption was also the least interesting, which is Roger Daltrey. You know, I mean, in a curious kind of way, one one tolerates the singing to get to the bits when the band are flying with the Who, you know. I think that's
0: right. <laughs> he looks good on stage. He looks like a rock star and a lead singer. Yeah. But it's not, you know, it, I mean, you compare him to to Robert Plant. It's just not a, a great voice. It's a very limited voice. It yeah. kind of works. On, you know, won't get fooled again, yeah. and indeed on on live at Leeds, it works. But the real voices, ironically, in the group are Townsend's phenomenal kind of lead and rhythm playing, yeah. Entwistle's relentless soloing, and Moon's relentless soloing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, oh,
2: they are a, just a different band to most very bands you know it's like and i
0: think that's also
2: the fact that it was those four people rather than say just entwistle and moon as great as they were without all of that other stuff around it it might have just been mania i mean i can't hear any of those guys playing with other bands no
0: you know i just can't conceive
1: of keith moon playing in another band or john playing in another band they wouldn't have room for them
0: I mean I don't know how many times you saw them I saw them only twice I saw Just them once. As, as I said earlier I saw Charlton and I saw them at Wembley Empire Pool I guess as it still was in 75 I don't remember either of those shows being as thrilling as what I hear on this record but sure. that's probably because you know Moon was already Kind of pretty out of it. I mean, still drumming incredibly well, but I mean, there's five more years of alcohol and drug abuse there by 75. So sure. <laughs> I don't know if, whether that's relevant.
1: Well, I mean, the, the other thing about them live, which I remember really disliking when I saw them, but you don't get it live at least because they cut it, are Townsend's and Turnbull introductions to songs. <laughs> You know, he just, in that slightly kind of whiny voice of his, would bollock on for about five minutes before the band would get going again. You know,
0: I mean, Pete was such an extraordinary anomaly, wasn't he? And I think it's just worth mentioning that. I mean, because the one thing that we haven't pointed out probably is that The Who did prefigure punk rock in so many different ways, not least because of Townsend's conscious decision not to be like a kind of hippie, a hippie god. You know, that when he just started wearing those white boiler suits and the bother boots, I mean it was it was a, a real kind of kick in the teeth for I think the sort of hippie movement. Of course he, yeah, yeah. he bashed Abby Hoffman over the head at Woodstock. <laughs> he was really anti hippie. And the sound of live at Leeds is is you could argue is very anti hippie. Yeah,
1: very fair point. Yeah. My
0: generation substitute mm. I can't explain. I mean, they're all pretty punky, going back to yeah, the, even to the mid 60s. Sure, sure. So, anyway, look, I would say Live at Leeds is for anyone who hasn't heard it and you want a real jolt of rock and roll excitement, you really can't beat Live at Leeds. Yeah. So, three free pieces about. Sorry, Mark, go ahead. No, no. I'd I just say the one thing is go onto Wikipedia look up what the track listing is
1: on the original mm. vinyl release and yes.
0: only play those tracks. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> on Spotify, it starts with Entmuscle's with song Heaven and Hell, whereas, you know, the, the vinyl album starts with Young Man Blues, you know, which is just such a exactly. kind of swaggering <laughs> anthem of rage against yeah. the older generation. It's just fabulous, fabulous, <laughs> fabulous.
3: Well, the young man ain't got nothing in the world these days.
0: Also free on Rock's Back Pages this week are three pieces by the writer who called herself Eden and wrote for the wonderful KRLA Beat. Mark, you've added so many pieces from this extraordinary and sort of hitherto little known rag. Tell us about it. Tell us about Eden.
1: Absolutely. Well, I found it's, it's available for all of you out there. There's a huge archive of KRLA Beat PDFs available online. And I discovered it because I was looking for, I think, Derek Taylor articles, and he wrote occasionally for it, and found this extraordinary thing. It was a free sheet, basically. It was a free magazine given out by KRLA, who are Los Angeles radio station. It started off initially in 64 as a sort of like four-page thing, which just featured the DJs on the station and all that. Right. And then a young woman called Louise Cristioni became the editor, and She's started expanding it hugely, and I really liked her stuff. So I looked up Christiani's in the Los Angeles sort of telephone directory online and found a Christiani, and I left a message on his. No, I rang him up, and this guy said, I said, are you related to Louise Christiani?" And he said, yeah, that's my sister. She died 10 years ago. I said, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry. I explained what we were doing at Rock's Back Pages, and I, I said, what's your email address? I'll send you an email. And he said... Okay, I'll get back to you. You know, maybe in a couple of weeks. He got back to me three hours later, saying that he had nothing that his sister would have liked more than to have had a writing on our site, which is oh. really lovely. So we got permission to run her stuff. Then I found two other writers who were doing really interesting stuff: Rochelle Reed and Carol Deck. And I did what we often do at Back Pages. We can't track down a writer. We'll start posting their stuff and give them a writer's page and say, if you know how to get in touch with either with, with Carol Deck or with Rochelle Reed, get in touch with a link to an email. And Carol Deck got in touch with me. And she was still friends with Rochelle Reed. And they both sort of came on board. I got in touch with them and said, look, Eden's a really interesting writer. You know, she's writing about interesting stuff. She writes interestingly herself. She's got a kind of – there's a lot of personality in it. What about her? And they said, oh, well, we think she's dead. They told me that her real name was Nikki Wine, and in fact, she does have that as a byline in a few articles. Yeah, KRLA Beat,
0: spell um, N I K K I. My yes, preferred a- spelling of Nikki. Absolutely. So that was,
1: you know, ha- how we ended up with that. I really love KRLA Beat as as a paper. It's it's basically a teen pop paper, though. You can see it morphing through '67 and '68. Uh, Jacoba Atlas, another one of our writers, pretty much started off on KRLA yep. Beat. Yes, you know, on the one hand, they're writing about. Pop. On the other hand, they're starting very early articles on things like the Jefferson airplane, and, and so on, and so forth. Yeah. Um, uh, and so you know it, it's straddling that uneasy thing, but because it's Los Angeles, there's lots of Beach Boys, there's lots of that yeah. kind of stuff going on. Yeah, I mean we've got. A, I think it's Eden's article where she goes on the photo shoot for what became the cover of Pet Sounds to San Diego Zoo.
0: Right. Uh, I, I, I just love that. Brilliant! That kind
2: of thing is such a fantastic cultural article. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a wonderful, wonderful thing to get to. So we've to chosen three
0: pieces by her and two of them actually about British bands um, just because they m- amused me slightly more. One is about what causes Beatlemania. It's her sort of theory <laughs> of Beatlemania which is really, and the second is about kind of hanging out at RCA Studios in Hollywood when the Stones are, are recording in the aftermath era there and then the third is I think probably a phone conversation with Marvin Gaye but they're really, they're, they're full of great details. I love her of Beatlemania. She, sort of, she sort of goes, "I'm no psychologist, but I am a Beatle maniac, and I am female." And basically, her theory is that her theory is that these girls, mainly girls, it is. I don't think there were that many crying boys at Beatles shows in America, but that they'd waited so long to see the the, the the fabulous mop tops from Liverpool that now they were seeing them, they were crying because they knew they were going to have to wait. To see them again. I mean, it's, it's they've already gone into sort of grief mode.
2: That's uh, very funny. It's sort of reminiscent of Paris syndrome in a way, which is when people visit Paris, particularly apparently a thing among Japanese tourists, because in Japan. Paris and France have these incredible reputations as these places of romance, and they, you know, they build up all these expectations, and then they get there, and it's different because it's not like in, right. you know, and the cry. fairy tales, quote unquote. Do they cry? I, I don't know if they cry, but people, I mean, they suffer psychiatric symptoms like hallucinations and all this kind of oh thing. Oh my god. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a documented medical phenomenon okay. when something differs from your expectations. It just reminded me of that. But I, what I like about the the Beatlemania article, and I and again, about Carole Beat in general, is something that you sometimes talk about when it comes to, say, rave magazine, Mark, is that there's an understanding of the audience and a sympathy yes. for the audience and a sympathy for young pop fans yes. that sometimes music papers can be a bit sneering towards. Oh, and I think uh, it's uh, no. much nicer to, to actually, you know... Be sympathetic and, that, that, and, and understand that, but because that, they,
0: were, that, they were they were they yeah. were young women yeah. themselves. I mean, maybe no, that's not The I mean, way that people but... interact with music, it
2: just is.
1: I've developed a, a real love for teen pop writing. In part of my job, you know, as, as a enter
0: second childhood.
1: Well, i quite. As a kid, I loved Fabulous magazine. And when I was eight, nine, ten years old, Fabulous magazine was my music paper of choice, and they spoke directly to you. They weren't patronising, they weren't sneering, and KRLA Beat was very much involved in the whole British invasion mania, you know? So, you know, these British bands, you know, who had come from places like Hertfordshire and wherever, would end up in... Bel Air or in, in, up in, in the hills of Hollywood Hills being kind of looked after and being sort of shown probably a pretty good time, you know. And so so <laughs> this is fantastic.
0: Talk <Call> Graham <laughs> Nash. <laughs> exactly. Shall you I know, stay here or shall I go back? <laughs> to... <laughs> with a <laughs> <him he> shot. Just...
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it is fantastic. I mean, there's a great Louis Christiani interview with Dusty Springfield and actually, Dusty does feel obviously out of place. And there's a photograph, and like, Louise Christian is roaring with laughter about something, and Dusty's looking slightly sheepish about the whole thing. But then again, you've got things like uh, Rochelle Reed famously or infamously interviewed Love in their mansion up in the hills. Yeah, and they were horrible to her. And they were absolutely horrible to her. And that became quite notorious. I mean, the very first article I ever read about Love in Zigzag magazine mentioned that article. as a sort of, you know, a key event, you know. Yeah, well, that's another band that was sort of punk rock before it's time, right? <laughs> but also it's great that they there was a big interview of them in 1966 in this team magazine, you know. They weren't getting any press coverage anywhere else. And the, the, at that point, 1966, the underground press barely existed. Yeah. You know, and so, so these was the
0: only the only game in town when it So Eden's Beatlemania article is October sixty-five. Then we jump forward to spring sixty-six. I absolutely love this yeah. account of essentially sort of just hanging around outside this the RCA studio where the stones are. They're they're there recording songs for for a little movie that never actually came out called Back Behind and In Front. And some of the songs they were recording for that movie, which they were going to make when they went back to England, but it was canned, then ended up on Aftermath. So I think these sessions led to some of the tracks on Aftermath. But they did quite a lot of work at RCA Studios with Dave Hassinger, Engineering. Great sound. And then Jack Nietzsche sitting in. Jack Nietzsche gets a couple of name checks. In this Eden piece, and they're just lovely, you know. I mean, at one point, Charlie Watts goes out for a sort of an ice cream sundae with Jack Nietzsche. So this is a (laughs) daft little... And then there's 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 something about Mick ordering, Mick Jagger ordering lots of pizza. Everyone else is eating hamburgers, but Mick preferred pizzas. So he apparently stank of pizza <laughs> all the time. The things one needs to know about... Crucial. ...recording sessions, absolutely. Crucial. I, I mean, forget, like, sort of overdubbing and mixing. Uh, <laughs> I just want to know how many pizzas Mick ate. the girl who But it's a great bit And Glenn Campbell pops it. Glenn Campbell pops yeah. in and has a chat with Keith in the lobby. Basically, Eden's having to observe everything from the lobby because she's not actually allowed into the session. Sure. But Glenn pops by and asks Keith if they're going to continue recording all night. And, of course, Keith says, yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: it's
1: about Jack Nietzsche because he's a name which crops up a lot in KRLA beats mm. because he was one of these Behind the scenes, scenesters of yeah. all the LA recordings, sort of scene, you know. Completely. And so you read these articles, and yes, they're teen pop stuff, and they're saying, and Sanso looks lovely with his bangs and all yeah. this sort of stuff. Yeah. But then these names crop up, yeah. you know, Lee Hazelwood and so on and so forth. They're all over this magazine in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, you know? completely. It's great. I it's great. I'm it really, is I'm, great.
0: Yeah, and then the, the last piece is, is this sort of soul-searching conversation with Marvin Gaye, which is great. You may—I don't know if you talked about this on the podcast before, Mark. It, it rings a bell for me, but it's just classic Marvin. It's January '67, like may even the interview may even have been done in late '66, and, and I don't think very few other R&B or soul stars of that era who would have said things like. When I'm in the dumps or when I don't feel like I should feel, music saves me. I can really feel low. I'm a very sensitive person. I get extremely depressed at times, and I find that music really perks me up. Oh, you know, yeah. it's it's very it's very open and candid. Very honest,
2: yeah, very candid honest. is right for
0: sure. And he also talks about, I mean, this is what rings a bell for me, Mark. So if if I'm repeating something you've quoted before. I don't before, remember Only so. he, he talks about, he says, through the years, it takes foreigners, English folks and Australian people, anybody but Americans, to recognise the great music potential of Negro folklore, quaint phrase there. <laughs> as soon as they decide this music has merit and it's good music, they record it. If they record it and sing it, then it becomes socially accepted by Americans.
1: Yeah. Well <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that's that's really interesting. Not
0: many people were saying that in sixty yeah. six.
1: Yeah, no that, that, that that's really interesting. I mean the other thing about Carol A. Beat is they actually covered black music quite extensively. Yes. The American Pop Press did. You know, whether it's Hullabaloo or whatever, you know, they, they talk, I mean, they have the monkeys all over the place, but they would have talk about Smokey Robinson, they'd talk about the Supremes, they'd talk about Marvin Gaye, maybe talk about Otis Redding, certainly James Brown, there's quite a lot of James Brown coverage. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And that sort of started going in Amer- the American rock press sometime around the 70s. The, the black faces became fewer and fewer. They really stopped
2: covering it, didn't they? They
1: kind of stopped covering it, and it's partly because of the emergence of FM radio, which seemed like a great thing at the time, because FM radio allowed album tracks to be played and all that. But the thing about AM radio, AM pop radio, is they would play the Supremes and then they'd play Mitch Ryder on Detroit Wheels or whatever, yeah? In the same way as we heard as we grew up in in, in certainly in England and were listening to Radio One and you 'd get the Supremes followed by the Rolling Stones, whatever fM radio allowed segregation to appear, and it wasn 't consciously racist segregation, but it was like the the fM radio followed niche audiences like sure. the white album buying audience, yeah yeah, and the music press to some extent followed. Although it's,
0: it's I think it's important to remember that in Crawdaddy the first few issues of mm-hmm. Crawdaddy which was I think by any by any definition the first sure. sort of serious rock rock and roll magazine. Yeah. John Landau was writing about soul was writing about Otis Redding. Yes, but
1: Barney that was in the pre FM era. Yeah. Crawdaddy yeah, yeah. emerged right. under AM radio. Yeah. The end result of FM radio has been the ridiculous stratification you've got now where you've got only country stations, you know, whilst, you know, as you yourself really well know that in the 60s you get country DJs playing soul music and vice versa, yeah, you know. Yeah. So FM radio, on the one hand, gave artists who were album artists the freedom to have their albums played on the radio, which was a good thing, yeah. but it did result in in, mm. in, in this, this sort of salami
2: slicing of audiences. And then the mixed stations are like the, the city stations, you know, yeah. like New Orleans' is WWOZ, mm. you know, that plays all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, there is a sort of jazz bent because it's New Orleans, but it does play all kinds of different things. It's not just a genre station. It's all the more enjoyable to listen to for that. I think because if I want to listen to a genre, I can go and play a record of that genre. But if I want someone else to be guiding my musical sure. experience, as it were, I think it's really interesting to get someone else to do that. Well, uh, uh, absolutely. That's brings today.
1: And the other thing is, is that the notes days people didn't own as many records as they do now. Yeah, they don't have sure. access to a amount of music. So the radio was the way you heard stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the, the glory days of AM radio, which everyone mocked at the time because it's, hey, it's pop. But it was pop that allowed you to hear music right across the, the racial divide in America, which I think was essential.
0: So those are the three pieces on the RBP homepage this week. And we will now turn our attention to what isn't free, on Rocksback Pages, starting, Mark, with this week's audio interview.
1: Well, I was going to leave that to you, Barney, because, (laughs) A... You, you
0: undertook the interview. Are you saying I did this interview? I'm saying you, you did this interview. What are you saying? What are you saying? Yeah, um, I, I, you're absolutely right, I did. <laughs> you started, mate. You started. <laughs> yeah, yeah you looking at my uh, point? Uh, anyway, so this week's audio interview is with someone I love very much, Ron Sexsmith, who releases a new album called Hermitage this week. It's also... the Coming up the 25th anniversary of his first major label album release, which is just called Ron Sexsmith, I've been a fan of his ever since then. I talked to him in 2011, really just about his whole career and about the way he writes songs and his influences. And I just remember it being a delightful conversation. And when I re-listened to it, once you digitized it, Mark, it was indeed, to me, a really nice conversation. And I think he's really interesting and articulate in it. I think he's just a thoroughly decent, interesting human being. Why don't we start, Mark, with just the first of three clips that we'll hear. This is just talking about him getting signed at the relatively late age of 31. First chance again, I'm gonna write you a
3: when I got signed, and I was just so uh, amazed that I got in the door, you yeah. know, because, you know, it was just, it just seemed so unrealistic, you know, coming from where I came from, that, you know, just how I looked and the kind of music I was doing, everything, you know, and I think for some reason in the early 90s, there was this opening where a guy like me could come through.
0: So that's Ron talking about getting signed I remember hearing that first record in fact I was interviewing Mitchell Froome who talked to me about producing that first album um, and what an unusual character Ron was really to, to pop up in that in that era I think he did sort of get in through a crack he was clearly someone who was influenced by people like Ray Davis and Harry Nielsen. he didn't fit in with like he didn't fit in with post-grunge music he didn't fit in with with Britpop but there was something I mean I think his melodies were really strong and his lyrics were were very concise and poetic and I I I happen to think his second album is probably his his best that was the one that really made me realize that he was I think a genuinely great singer-songwriter with a wonderful title, Other Songs. Um, <laughs> and I think he's made, I, I mean, his new album, I'm not kind of entirely convinced by the last two or three records, but I think over the course of maybe seven or eight albums, there's at least sort of 25, 30 pretty damn great songs. In fact, I've put a playlist together on Spotify of what I think are his best songs from from oh from, the, from like 10 albums. I mean, he made a lot of records. He basically sort of one every couple of years for about 30 years now, you know. He keeps going. He keeps going. I mean, he's consistent and he keeps going and he manages, you know, I think it's really really difficult for there are so many singer-songwriters out there. And they tend to go from one kind of piddly little deal to another, unless they're Ed Sheeran (laughs) or Drake or somebody. You know, he's managed to just about keep going. You know, someone will always give him a deal. He's He's got a devoted following. I mean, I saw him play the Albert Hall sometime in the last sort of eight or nine years. And, I mean, he had sold out one night at the Albert Hall. That's probably... That that kinda of tells you what his kind of standing is. He's highly regarded by the likes of you know, Elvis Costello and so on and so forth, you know. He's got a massive he's got a, a real celebrity fan club. Yeah, you know. As People like that often seem to. I mean, we talked about Rufus Wainwright last week, and he's had a lot of celebrity fans. I mean, Elton John's a fan of... Elton John, Elton John, exactly. Elvis Costello particularly gave him a kind of thumbs up. People have covered his songs. I mean, Emmylou Harris did Hard Bargain, which was the the title song of one of her albums. Michael Bublé did um, (laughs) Whatever It Takes. And he's, you know, he's a big Canadian star. So I I think Ron probably pays for the groceries with kind of things like that i mean none of his albums have sold he never had a huge hit record but but big stars have fallen in love with his songs and covered them and i think that sort of helped i can we listen to the second clip where essentially he's talking about other people's songs and what he thinks makes a song special
3: i love you Kisses deep and warm Your hair on the pillow You know, I, I hear songs, other people's songs, sometimes where I'm like, okay, you got started with something good, but then you kind of let it slip or something, yes. you know? And, um... Yes. I just I just like the idea of trying to, you know, like if I'm listening to, to somebody's song and, it, and I don't understand what they're go- going on about, I, I get I sort of lose interest, you know. Yes. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I love when John Lennon would write these sort of psychedelic things, or Dylan, but it would leave an impression somehow, you know. Yes. Like, they they weren't just throwing words around. No. there was a mind at work, you know. Indeed. And and that's what I I love about, you know, something like Leonard Cohen, That's No Way to Say Goodbye, for example. Mm. That... Profoundly um, influenced me when I when I first heard that because in two verses he says everything in such a beautiful way that that you you would ever need to say about um, you know two people going their separate ways you know hey, that's no way to say goodbye.
0: You know that quote speaks to my sense of Sexsmith, and what a bizarre name Ron Sexsmith is, <laughs> after all. It's not a name you would choose if you... Does, really does he hammer
1: Sex into... <laughs> you know, like an honestly, <laughs> not honestly like it just you makes do. me
2: think that the producers of Anchorman picked the wrong name for Ron ah. Burgundy.
0: <laughs> Ron Sexsmith would have been a much better name. Yeah, and Ron, Ron Sexsmith should have called himself Ron Burgundy, and probably yeah, probably had a, a much more It was just a sort of cosmic mix-up. But I... What that quote tells me is, you know, how seriously he does take the craft of songwriting. His songs are like little poems. They're like little stories, little vignettes where nothing is kind of wasted. There's nothing empty. There isn't a phrase that just feels like it was chucked in to make a rhyme. They have a kind of beginning, middle and end. And I really admire that about him. He takes you into this. This funny little world, he'll often start with just a kind of phrase like thinking out loud or "former glory and fashion something, you know, genuinely affecting out of it, I think. I've interviewed him a couple of times, met him once. He's a, he's a really lovely and unaffected and, and unmannered and humble human being and more part of him, I say. And we'll, we'll, we'll hear another clip at the end. I mean, I think one of the things that, just to sort of anticipate that clip, when you see him live, you know he doesn't sort of run onto the stage like Rod Stewart or Mick Jagger. There's something, there's something really shy about him. And and in the last clip, he talks about getting obsessed by this Neil Diamond <laughs> live DVD, yes. and he really just. He just wishes he could be like Neil Diamond. And he guests friends over. You've got to come over and watch this Neil Diamond. Yeah. He talks it's about just... Neil
1: Diamond come kind of owning the stage. Owning every the stage. inch of the stage.
0: And, and just not apologising for being Neil Diamond. Whereas with Ron, you always get a sense Ron is apologising for being hey, Ron Saxman.
1: A friend of mine posted that, photo, that cover of the Neil Diamond album, which I think is a live album. And he appears to be holding his own yes. giant penis. It's
0: this night. <laughs> Hot August <laughs> Night, absolutely. In fact, it's funny, I just was checking earlier you, today, the Quietus, a few about. years ago, did their favourite live albums ever. And, and Live at Leeds, you know, perversely, wasn't on it. Of course not. No. So, yeah, the Quietus. Bloody, doing bloody contrarians. But, but Hot August Night, of course, wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> complete complete with the cover you referred to. Is it just magnificent. I mean I anyway we won't we'll talk about Neil Diamond another day. Mark, <laughs> do you want to tell us about some of your highlights among Yes, the new well, pieces?
1: I suppose I do really, don't I? Um <laughs>
0: Well, <laughs> see. Well, I mean,
1: my, you know, only if it's not too much trouble. No, no. Um, there's actually not a huge amount this week, even though there's lots of good stuff, just there's not a lot of quotable stuff. But I did like this. Is, again, Ivor Davis, who's become one of my new favourite writers we got on board recently for the Daily Express in 1964, he briefly interviews Doris Day, who had just been voted like Hollywood's most, you know, wonderful actress or something along those lines. She says, I play mostly happy, clean parts. Decency on the screen is very important to me. I'm really not with some of the downbeat pictures being made these days. You know, Miss Prim. I just don't <laughs> quite like that. Yeah. I, you know, I love the fact that you know her son Terry Melcher, ended
0: up yes, kind didn't of didn't a... exactly abide by that by <laughs> the, the,
1: the, that sensibility. Chicken Shack. The oh god, I forget the guy's name. It's Stan Webb. Stan, Stan Webb. Webb. Stan Webb and Chicken the
0: Shack been,
1: Stan Webb. been interviewed by Richard Green in the Musical Express in 1969. And this is really more about Richard Green than Stan Webb. Half-time was signalled by the cry, empty your glasses now, please. It's well after time. So we adjourned to a fashionable Wardle Street club. I'm spending half my life up here, Stan opened. Every night I threatened to go home and get an early night and I finished coming here. Mm. I'd imagine that knowing Richard Green's reputation, they probably stayed there for about another few hours...
0: I think um, Stan was one of the beast's favoured drinking companions.
1: <laughs> yeah, well done. No, there you, there you go. There you have it. Yeah. Seventy-one. Chris Charlesworth, melody maker. He's interviewed Manatas Platter. Now we can kind of, I think we've all rather forgot about Mano Platter. He was a pretty big star as a sort of gypsy Franco French. He was a French gypsy flamenco guitarist, an improviser. We, you know, we forget that, that he he would. He basically can, you know, really improvise on stage. It's a difficult interview, language gap. He's got a translator, a young woman is translating from the French. He also just is clearly talking bullshit. But he's notorious for refusing cheques and only taking cash. And he says, if the bank has no money, then you have no money. Cash means something and a cheque means nothing.
3: All
1: right. Uh, which, is, which is kind of like the Chuck Berry and James Brown sort of school of thought, you know. <laughs> Leaping over a decade. Uh, So this this is a really interesting... It's a long report by John Abbey on the Jacksons' victory tour, which was... Well, yeah, exactly. And it was also probably the last iteration of the Jacksons before Michael separated himself off entirely. But he goes into the whole business of the tour, including, like, the ticket sales. He says, those unlucky enough not to be chosen for a ticket however have to wait somewhere between six and eight weeks before their money will be returned and this is just one of the many facets of the system that caused aggravation as an aside to it all the money was all put into a 30-day certificate that would earn the jacksons a further million you know so basically they were making money off non-ticket sales
0: Which it was is a just... horribly bloated oh, extravaganza yeah. i mean i was flown to new york to review a show, I can't remember if it was the first show on, on the Victory Tour, as yeah. it was called, uh, Meadowlands or Giant Stadium. I remember going in the coach from the, the hotel in New York with Mick Brown, funnily enough. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about Jerry Hershey's wonderful soul book, Nowhere to Run. Yeah. And then we got to see this, as I say, extravaganza that was just about as far from the roots of soul music as you can imagine. It was well, just it- dreadful.
1: Indeed, John Abbey says about the audience, in all honesty, the
0: middle-class and middle-aged audience didn't
1: help. I'd love to see the show in different confines and with the right audience. Maybe the almost indifferent attitudes of Jackson's towards the audience would have changed. Mm -hmm. So basically, they were playing to a substantially white and pretty middle-class audience, because the tickets are expensive, you know, $30 a pop. And it, then there's, there's all this business about the promoters. In New Orleans, the biggest rumpus ensued. Cliff Wallace, general manager of the Superdome, went on Nationwide TV and stated that the promoters had asked that the facility be given to them for nothing, and that both the city and state should waive all taxes. I mean, it was just a really nasty money
0: grubbing operation. Wow, that is and that just, and the album was horrible as well as I Oh yeah, call. well he, I mean, he's, Mick he's Jagger some, he's, was on it, wasn't he? On State of Shock. Yes, yeah. I'm looking at the track listing here on Spotify. It was utterly soulless. Yeah, mechanical no, I mean, he,
1: bollocks. John Abbey, as part of this write up, reviews the album and is pretty scathing about it. You know, you know, there's one or two good things on it, but. Nothing is as good as any of them as individuals, like Jermaine and Michael. It's only, two years from, from it's only Michael. two
0: years from Thriller, and it's yes. already just, yes. just dire. And yeah. also, the Jacksons had made some decent records as a group before that, you know. But this was sure. this was the, the, the sure. worst of eighties excess, I think, in many ways, both the tour yeah. and the album. Yeah. And it's a really good. Really it's the a... end. The end of the, It was the end of the Jacksons yes. as, as yes. a as a fraternal.
1: Act. Yes, it's a really it's really worth reading this piece. It's it's, yep. it's long, okay, it's
0: extensive, and it really goes into the
1: details of the whole nasty business. What's next, Marco? Well, the next is Metallica at Wembley Arena, Ian Gittins for Melody Maker in June 1990. Now, Metallica were the metal band that the thoughtful rock press were allowed to like. Yeah, is that fair to say? They, were, they had a certain sort of... Well, they were quite good, actually. Well, <laughs> well, this is Ian Gittins' take. Metallica have had many kind and generous things written about them in this paper. Advocates have been highly persuasive and seductive. This is all very well until the rhetoric meets head-on with reality. Metallica are horrible. <laughs> well, <this> is it?
3: <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah. Ooh, he says, okay. well, this is
1: it? <laughs> well, he carries on. This was... Well, this isn't strictly true. Their grinding grey din does have a certain mechanical appeal. There's something impressive about dullness, this rigid and efficient. But biceps and belligerence, I'm sad to report, don't make for a full set of aesthetics. Who wants to do this all the time? You know, so it's it's great. You know, it's very rude. Love a good rude review. Well, I do. I do. I
0: do. I do.
1: Caitlin Moran interviewed Belly for the Times in 1993, and they're basically it's it's a it's a marvellously typical Caitlin Moran sort of interview, which is more about kind of hilarity than sort of anything else. Gail Greenwood, member of the band, says. Tanya's really sweet that way. Last week, she spent hundred dollars having a kitten put down that someone had run over. That really endeared her to me. <laughs> 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 and then the very last piece is actually is, is pretty fantastic. It's a extensive profile and interview with Alan McGee by Sean O'Hagan. Alan McGee, the Creation Records boss, signed Oasis uh, and Jesus and Mary Chain and Primal Scream, etc. And he had sobered up. This is a man who, as he says here, says, I was hammering it worse than any of the artists. You think it's rock and roll, but it's just bullshit. And he says, in therapy, I had to face up to the fact that I had an addictive personality, that I'm not someone who does things by heart. But then he's still convinced that this label has got a long way to go. And, in fact, it doesn't have a long way to go after this, after 97. He says, I have the best group in the world. I'm still signing great new talent, like Arnold. Three Colours Red, 18 Wheeler.
3: Oh, Arnold.
0: In some some parallel... Oh, my favourite band. It's it's, it's great. There is is a parallel universe where Arnold
1: are the biggest band in the world. Well, he says, I never bought into the indie ghetto mentality that small is beautiful. I want to sell shitloads of records. That's my job. Which is fair enough, but didn't really manage it with Arnold, Three Colours Red and 18 Wheeler.
2: (laughs) (laughs) band names as well I think I mean there is a sort of you have the, the benefit of hindsight but you sort of you feel like those can't have been successful based on their names
0: <laughs> are you saying that Alan's Midas touch deserves <laughs> something along those lines Barney <laughs> That's my lot. That's your lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just mention a couple of pieces that I. I actually wanted to just note, Mark, that you added an extremely early piece on Felt True. by Dave McCulloch from 1981, by far the earliest piece we have on them, when Lawrence is referred to as John Lawrence in this piece. He's not <laughs> yes. He's not Lawrence, let alone Lawrence of Belgravia yet. No, he's, quite... just Lawrence. he's just John Lawrence. It's, it's, interesting. A...
1: it's infuriating because it's a typical Dave McCulloch interview, which isn't really an interview. What Dave McCulloch is, is, he hangs around with the band, obviously talks to them but then writes his own thoughts rather than actually what the band have said.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Which is
1: slightly frustrating at times. I'm going
0: to just quickly mention a short interview with the late great Humphrey Littleton. Oh, yeah. Subtitled Radiohead's newest member. Um, He's already about 89 at this point, Humph, and he's interviewed in a pub near where I live. I could almost see it from my window, the, the the bull's head in barns. And he has just played on Radiohead's album Amnesiac, I think. So he just talks about working with them. There's a nice piece by Mark Anthony Neal about Donny Hathaway. Uh. More Donny. We all want more Donny. And it's, like, actually she's, it's a, a piece about a long prose poem that a guy called Ed Pavlich has published about Donny Hathaway. It's just a nice piece saying, you know, what many of us feel about Donny Hathaway. He should have been as big a star, at least as Marvin Gaye, I think. Before I hand over to our esteemed colleague Jasper, Alan Light of Rolling Stone and Spin Fame, just the other day just sent me a short interview with Taylor Swift that he did in 2014 about Swifty. the 1989 album, which was which is just about to come out. And from it, I have extracted the quote going to feature on the homepage, which goes like this: there's nothing that says I only care about my girlfriends now. It's just the idea that I'm thrilled, excited, fascinated by things other than boys. <laughs> anyway, I liked uh, I have to say 1989. You're did... a bit of a, <laughs> a closet Taylor Swift fan, aren't you, Barney? Well, I I I'm not really, but um mm. I I the nineteen eighty-nine album I kind of I kind of got it. There were just two or three tracks from that. Blank Space, I thought was fantastic. And of course, the one that Paul likes to play a lot. How does that go? Well, do we're never getting back together with the goat. The goat, yeah. <laughs> 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 She's not getting what? back together with the goat? Oh, What's I'm that?
2: disappointed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone's cut into the, the chorus of a song because yes. it has this sort of dubstepy kind of production. Someone's cut into that, uh, this goat screaming in the midst of... Yeah. I think I might treat the listeners
0: to that as a. Is as that a even on? The, I mean, that, so it's, it's it's the song called Trouble, it and it's probably not even on that record. I'm so oh. I'm so ignorant, but is it is it a Trouble? fantastic Sorry. record. <laughs>
1: Quite enough,
0: Barney. All right, okay. I love that. I absolutely love that, that song. I think, I think, you know, she's made some fantastic pop records. So let's just, let's just leave it there. Jasper, why don't you wrap things up with your selections of the week?
2: I'd like to wrap things up by mentioning a couple of articles. The first of which is Childish Gambino live at the basement at the camp. Camp being the City Arts and Music Project in EC1 in London. Right. I'm just going to wait for my neighbour to stop hammering. <laughs> thank you um and it's not ron saxmith so... is it <laughs> oh he's drilling now <laughs> ron no ron Sax drill oh so this is charles gambino live at the city arts and music project in london it's his first appearance in london this is our second article on charles gambino i'm a big fan of charles gambino he's a sort of actor, script writer, turned rapper. He still does acting and script writing. He was on the American sitcom Community, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I think it's a fantastically funny, clever program. And he's very funny in that. But he also wrote and I think directed Atlanta, a TV series that recently was very, very highly acclaimed. And he makes music. He sort of started out doing kind of rap. Things And he then released a soul album called Awaken My Love a couple of years ago, which I'd really like as a record. And I like some of his rap as well. But so David Sinclair goes to see this first London show for The Times in 2012. And the interesting thing about Charles Gambino as a rapper, and this is what David Sinclair points out, is that he's quite different from what David Sinclair describes as the the get-rich-or-die-trying stereotype that has dominated hip-hop, quote-unquote, on its journey from ghetto art to a new form of stadium rock. And Donald Glover, Charles Gambino, his parents are Jehovah's Witnesses. And so he grew up in the suburbs of Georgia, very much not in the kind of urban scene that that a lot of rap comes from. And so he was criticised for not being part of that sort of authentic hip hop narrative. But he tries to kind of lay claim to his own right to make the music that he wants to make regardless. I don't know. I think he's an interesting musician and he's got some interesting things to say. His most recent album just came out, which is why I wanted
0: to add this piece. It came out like end of last month. But he's a much bigger star now than he was in 2012. So it's interesting to read about his first UK appearance, if that's what it was. Yeah, it
2: was his first UK appearance. He had a band as well, which is unusual for a a hip-hop gig. He's a real renaissance man, isn't he? A real renaissance man, yeah. I think Awaken My Love is a really great record. other piece just the other piece is power bottom <laughs> <laughs> i need i need like Damn that boy <laughs> but so this is an interesting thing this is pitt williams writing in his kind or his kind i'm not sure how you say that magazine's name an online mag this is about a duo called power bottom who are sort of hotly tipped to become the next big indie thing in 2017 And then allegations of sexual assault came to light and they were dropped by promoters, by their label, basically just completely dropped in a way that one rarely sees. And this is the point that Pip is making in this article, is that, you know, why were they dropped so fast compared to, like, say, Dr. Luke, the whole Kesha thing, Chris Brown and Rihanna. Like, Chris Brown still basically, you know, people still sort of accept him even though there were these very strong allegations made. R. Kelly. Uh, you know, R. Kelly. Well, I in that don't think people hold.
0: certainly don't accept R. Kelly no, anymore. No, that's well, true. We can, we but, can but agree of, on that. <laughs>
2: a lot of a lot of people escape kind of unscathed from yes. yeah. from those kinds of allegations, but PowerBottom didn't. Is that because and, of the Me Too? is that because of Me Too? Possibly. I mean this is twenty seventeen rather than say twenty twelve, and I think yeah. I think that helps. But the other thing is, and this is the thing that Pip is writing about, is that Powerbottom are a queer band and so a lot of their fans are more quote-unquote woke than maybe other bands fans and so the reaction came much more decisively and much stronger because there was a sense of betrayal and hypocrisy from like the band who had claimed to be championing LGBTQ individuals but then you know it turned out they were the one of them at least was alleged to be assaulting fans after gigs and stuff and so there was this sort of real revulsion that that someone who had felt like part of a community was doing these things, and that's what contributed to them getting just just dropped so quickly, and that basically they haven't been heard of since, as far as I can I can tell.
1: On the on the subject of fairly revolting artists, have you heard about Moby sacking all the staff of his oh, his God, San yeah. Francisco restaurant? Uh, means really? they've lost they've lost health coverage and all of that. You know, a man with deep pockets has basically just. Well, his... And the
0: same thing's happening with Ellen DeGeneres' staff on her show. I mean, I know she's not a musician, but I mean, this is feeling fairly widespread. You, you, yeah. you, people, are, the leopards are really showing their spots.
1: Yeah, Richard Branson wanting a bailout from the government oh, when he, he doesn't, hasn't paid
0: we... tax in this country
1: for a million well, bloody let's years. Let's talk for another hour about what we've <laughs> people. What, what yeah. we, what we called? Will you
0: stay with us?
1: Yes. <laughs> what is it the Rock's Back Pages t-shirts are going to have on them? <laughs> Sneeringly woke. <laughs> Sneeringly woke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. But anyway, I just I just wanted to mention that piece from Pip, because so I think it's a really good piece of writing, cool. sort of exploring kind of essay, like what contributed to this and, yeah. and how, what can we learn from it as well. Stuff. Right. So interesting stuff. So I think that's
0: interesting. Terrific. Well, thanks, Jasper. That's our lot for this week. We are going to go out with the third and final clip from the Ron Sexsmith audio interview where he talks about... <laughs> About his lack of confidence on stage and his acquisition of a certain live DVD by Neil Diamond. So <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back next week to talk about, among other things, rock photography, the great photographers of music, with our guest Jill Furmanovsky. So please join us then as well. Fantastic. Thank you and good night.
1: Great. See you. Bye. Thanks for
0: listening. Bye bye.
3: This Neil Diamond live DVD that uh, of a recent tour, like mm. from 2008 or something, mm. and I could not, not stop watching it. I was watching it every night, and people come over, "Oh, you got to see this DVD," you know. <laughs> and and 'cause the more in the back of my mind, that's who I really wanted to be—not not Neil Diamond, but I wanted, like, you know, when when he comes out on stage, he completely owns it. You know, he he is Neil Diamond, yeah. not embarrassed or oh, anything. Oh no. And people love him, right? And I would see this movie, uh, and, I mean, see him with his, he's had the same band for 30 years or whatever, and he comes yeah. out, and and uh, and I was thinking, well, that's what I want to be. I mean, I want to have my band, I want to come out, I want to feel, good, you know, comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. You hard Let my bed run down, but I'm-
2: That was Ron Sexsmith in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 2011, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.
1: Well, that was all quite jolly. That's Okay. Yeah, got going. It was just a slightly sluggish start. Yeah, <laughs> sneeringly half
3: asleep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh god, we could have been more woke at the beginning.
0: Couldn't we? <laughs> uh- <laughs> Wake up and snare.